You know, I find some of the simplest subjects in the Bible oftentimes are some of the most encouraging to me. And oftentimes we hear lessons, we study lessons, we can't help but be reminded of the blood of Christ that brought salvation to man. Of course, we know it was the whole scheme of redemption from the beginning to the end, and some have even said that the blood of Christ is like a scarlet thread that runs from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. And tonight we're going to look at the blood of Christ. We know that when man sinned in the garden, it wasn't long after that that God provided coats of skins for man once man left the Garden of Eden. And some have even said that that was the very beginning of the shedding of blood to protect man in not the same way as Christ's blood, but similar. And it's not hard to see from that very point that God loved man enough to take care of him. And God loves man enough and loved man enough to send his only begotten son to this earth to suffer not only a cruel death on the cross, but the things leading up to the cross. I'm sure that if we would have been there, we could have seen the mistreatment that Christ suffered, the ridicule, and at the point of going to the cross and when those last few hours, the physical abuse that he suffered also. So the blood of Christ does not come cheap. The blood of Christ helps us to realize God's great love for us in the fact that he would send his son, first of all, to this earth. Christ left heaven to come to this earth. And just the other day, we were, I was talking with Brian and I think Jim about how Lazarus must have felt when Christ called him back into this world from paradise. Such a wonderful place, so much better than this earth, and yet Christ calls Lazarus back into this world, and Lazarus had to come back and suffer once again. Now, we're not told what happened to Lazarus after that, but we can see that coming back into this world is certainly not as great as being over into paradise. We look at the blood of Christ, we can look at several things. And the first one we want to look at tonight is it made it possible for us to have remission of sins. Because we're told by the Hebrew writers and uh, Hebrews writer in Hebrews 9:22 that without the shedding of blood there's no remission. So, where would that leave us? I don't really know. It's hard to speculate on that, but it's wonderful that we don't have to worry about that. It's wonderful that God has made a way for us that we don't have to wonder what's going to happen. I know there are a lot of people in this world who wonder what's going to happen once they die. Well, if they would study God's Word and if they would embrace it and follow it, they would know. But yet there are many who do not accept the teachings of the Scriptures and they live their lives wondering what's going to happen in the afterlife. But when we look at the fact that the shedding of the blood made it possible for us to have remission of sins, we can see that it was God's plan from the beginning. Christ was not an afterthought. Christ was there from the beginning. We know that uh, after Adam and Eve sinned, that God promised that there would be a Savior. 
when that happened, and of course we know that man was told that of all the trees of the garden they could freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they couldn't eat of that tree, and that if they did eat of that, that they would surely die. Now I feel that there were two deaths at that point, one spiritual and one physical. Because if they would have been able to remain in the garden, they could have had the tree of life and lived forever. But then you have the spiritual side too. Man died spiritually when that happened. That separated man from God at that point. So when that happened, man needed a Savior because man was not then and has never been in a position to create salvation for himself. I know that there are different religions in the world that teach that man can control himself and become a god at some point. But we know that that's not what the scriptures teach. We know that man does not have that ability. But it would take the blood of Christ, it would take the blood of a perfect sacrifice in order to save man. When we look at the book of Hebrews, it is a tremendous book contrasting the Old Testament and the sacrifices, and in many cases contrasting those sacrifices to Christ. We know that under the law of Moses, whenever a lamb was offered, it had to be without blemish and without spot, and basically it had to be a perfect sacrifice. And that's why Christ was the perfect sacrifice, because he was without blemish and without spot. No other person could fulfill that position that Christ did. I don't know if there would be another human being that would even offer to do that. I don't know. But we know that Christ was the perfect sacrifice. And the reason that man needed one was because he could not do it on his own. Sin separates us from God. Even after becoming a Christian, we can be separated from God. But Isaiah wrote to the Israelites that their sin had separated between them and God. Their sins caused God to, to separate from them, turn his back away from them. What if we never had a way of being forgiven? I don't know. But God had enough love for us that he did not turn his back permanently. He did not turn his back permanently on Israel. They turned their back on God. But yet, many think that just because Israel turned their backs on God, that God decided to uh, have a plan B and come up with Christ instead. Well, that's not the case. But we see that the shedding of the blood of Christ made it possible for us to have the remission of sins. What does it really mean to have our sins remitted? It means to have them taken away. We talk about being justified, and some people have broken that down to mean uh, just if I had never sinned. Because when we obey the gospel, when we go down into the waters of baptism and come up uh, out of that watery grave, we are cleansed, and we stand in a position as if we've never sinned before. Now that's a tremendous gift from God. That's a tremendous thing that God does for us, and Christ does for us. That blood takes away the sin that we have. And it's important to realize that, that our sins are remitted. 
The Apostle Paul tells us, for the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6, 23. How important is that to you tonight, to have your sins taken away? And we know that there are those who may be facing prison time. I wonder how they would feel if somebody came up and said, well, I will take your place. You don't have to go. I'll take your place. Would that person be happy? I think so. Just as we're happy because we can have remittance of our sins by the blood of Christ. It is so important to understand that Christ came to this earth, lived as a human, knowing that he was going to go to the cross, and he still went anyway. He put his life out there to be ridiculed, to be mistreated, and eventually to suffer such a horrible death all for the sake of man. It is hard to look around at the world and see how the world treats that. In other words, no appreciation, could care less, And yet, we'll still expect God to give them an eternal reward in heaven. But when we look at the fact that without the blood of Christ, we would be without hope. Remember when Paul told the Gentiles that at one time they were without hope. That must be a bad feeling. Have you ever looked into the eyes of a person that actually has no hope in their minds? It's not a pretty picture. But yet we have hope because of the blood of Christ. Because the blood of Christ takes away our sins through obedience to the gospel. So, how important is that blood of Christ in your life? Maybe something you want to ponder. Through reading the scriptures, we know that there is only one church, one body. And... This one, the blood of Christ reconciles men into one body. Now there is the perception or the belief that all religious groups that claim Christianity uh, are part of one big body. Many will not de- deny that there's one body, but they feel that in the religious world that diff- these different groups fit into that one body. And of course, John 15 is... One section, of past, uh, one section of Scripture that is taken out of context where it talks about the, brine, the uh, vine and the branches. And people say, well, the branches are the denominations in the world. So they still try to fit that together into one body. And we know that that's not what the Scriptures teach. It really wouldn't take long to prove to a person if they're willing to learn that there is only one body. Before Christ went to the cross, and in his day and time, uh, not unlike today, there were a lot of barriers in life, a lot of prejudices, a lot of uh, social situations where you have a lot of barriers, and and Christ took that away uh, in the spiritual realm. We know that the uh, Jews did not like the Gentiles, and the Gentiles did not like the Jews, and then you had the Samaritans in there, And it was not a pretty picture. 
but not unlike today because we still have groups that are uh, tremendously opposed to other groups because of the color of their skin, because of where they might live, because of wealth or lack of wealth or whatever. So there are still those things that exist. But Christ came to reconcile everybody into one body in, in the sense that there would be no discrimination, no one higher than another. Because, because looking at the church and the uh, way that God wanted it set up, there would be no one above another as far as importance. We find that in the religions today. We find that there are those who uh, are heads of those organizations and they look at those below them as lower, of lesser importance maybe. But yet it is not that way in the church. And it's the blood of Christ that established and bought the church. We know that when Paul talked to the Ephesian elders, he mentioned to them that the blood of Christ bought the church. The church and our salvation comes at a very high price. It comes with the price of costing Jesus his life. But Paul, as he went about teaching the Jews and the Gentiles, oftentimes had to tell them the fact that there's no more Jew or Gentile. Why? Because that problem or that perception still existed. So when we look at what Paul says, we must understand in Paul's teaching to the Jews, he was trying to sell them, uh, tell them that God accepts the Gentiles. And he had to explain to the Gentiles that they were now equal with the Jews. And although the church, and many times people want to ridicule the church, the church is what brings people together as one unit. We know in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, that Paul talks about being baptized into one body. We know Ephesians 4 talks about one body. We know that Ephesians 1.18 talks about the church, the body of Christ. The blood of Christ removed these barriers in the religious sense, which would should, in a, in a true sense, remove barriers in life. Because once we realize what God has done for us and what the church is, that there's none uh, over another in the church, as we have different positions of, uh, you know, such as elders and all, that doesn't mean elders are better than a person who is not an elder or a deacon. That's not what that means. But when we see that God has made everyone equal in the church, that should also tell us that we should be equal in the world that we shouldn't have prejudices. We shouldn't feel that we're better than anybody else. Even as God's people today, we should not feel that we're better than some other uh, religious organization. We should still have compassion on people. We should still love them. The blood of Christ helps us to realize that because Christ didn't die for one particular type of people. He died for everyone. His blood covers the whole world. We can see that even in his day, uh, there were regulations, although Christ didn't uh, mount the political platform 
and preach against the evils of the day, such as slavery, but he regulated it through his word, through the Holy Spirit and what the, uh, the writers wrote. There was regulation. And as Brian mentioned this morning about 1 Corinthians 13, uh, maybe that's something we should read every day because of how we're to have love not only for one another in the church, but love for the world in the sense not loving what the world does, but having love for those lost souls. And I know that you are like I am. You look around every day and you you just shake your head at people who seem unconcerned about salvation. And we know that one day there will be a judgment and many people will not uh, make it past that judgment into heaven. And that's a terrible thing. I, I do not want to stand next to anyone who is going to be condemned because it would not be a pretty sight. But the blood of Christ reconciles us into one body. If you will, turn over to Ephesians, the second chapter. Paul was one who was particularly uh, suited for uh, dealing with the Gentiles and the Jews. Uh, Many people think that when the, the Scriptures talk about Paul being sent to the Gentiles, that he never spoke with the Jews and never talked with the Jews, but that's not the case. He dealt with both. In fact, the fact that he was a Pharisee at one time uh, gave him tremendous insight into the law of Moses, and yet he would, and then being guided by the Holy Spirit in uh, being an apostle, he would be able to uh, be on both sides, and he would be the one who would be in a perfect position. Uh, to deal with such. But in Ephesians, the second chapter, beginning in verse 12, uh, of course, he is speaking with uh, the Gentiles beginning with uh, this point, but he says, that, uh, that of that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall or partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the laws of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereof. This was something that they needed to understand Uh, tremendously uh, at that point because there was still a lot of uh, contention between Jews and Gentiles. But Paul says very plainly, trying, you know, that it was God's plan to reconcile reconcile both Jew and Gentile into one body, and that would be the body of Christ. It's important to realize that when we try to help people, and and it is uh, a challenge sometimes helping people understand this day and time, that the old law is taken away, that it never was meant to be permanent. It was always meant to be temporary, and we can find that in Galatians 3, verses 24 and 25, how that the law was considered a schoolmaster to bring the Jews unto Christ. And and Paul says very plainly there that they're no longer under a schoolmaster. It doesn't get much simpler than that, but we see the love that God had for humanity to want them uh, in one body 
not having two separate bodies and those two separate bodies at opposition with one another. So it's the blood of Christ that reconciles all men into one body. Another thing about the blood of Christ is that the New Testament was dedicated by that blood. Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And many think today that if the old law is still, uh, if Christ has a new law, that he destroyed the old law or he didn't fulfill it. Well, he did. He, was, he came to fulfill that old law and he did fulfill that old law. Uh, and as I just said a moment ago, it was temporary. And if you want to go back and you read the, the third chapter of Galatians, it's a good place to go and, and help get better understanding of the difference between the two laws and the fact that it, the old law was temporary. Uh, but Christ fulfilled the law. He didn't destroy it, as some say, but he fulfilled that law. When we look at uh, what was spoken, if we go to Luke, the 24th chapter, beginning in verse 44, uh, as Jesus is explaining uh, to his uh, apostles there, talking about uh, Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and all of those things uh, must be fulfilled in order for him uh, to go to the cross and what wasn't fulfilled before that time would be fulfilled by his going to the cross. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn over to Luke 24th chapter, uh, Christ talks about the uh, Psalms and the uh, prophets and the things that they wrote of him. But beginning in verse 44, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Now that looks like that might be three different things, but that's all one thing. We know that the prophets and the Psalms are all considered the law of Moses. But he goes on to say, then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but uh, tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem till ye be endued with power from on high, that was leading up, that was a, pro, a prophecy concerning the establishment of the church on the day of Pentecost. He's telling them to wait there in Jerusalem until they would be uh, endued with power from on high, and they did exactly that, and that was on the day of Pentecost. But we see that Christ also said in Matthew twenty six twenty eight that his blood was of the New Testament, and it was shed for the remission of sins. Looking at, at that statement within itself, he says, uh, he, he talks about the New Testament showing that there is a new law, that it would not uh, be dedicating the old law, but he would be dedicating the new law, and that that blood was the blood of the New Testament. If we go to Hebrews, the ninth chapter, if you will, turn over. beginning in verse 14. 
How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is a mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, that which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance." For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. You know, I'd read this verse before on several occasions, but you know, you, what happens sometimes, you'll read something over and over, and then something all of a sudden looks different. And I was reading this verse, and I noticed how there are a lot of times people ask the question, well, if Christ died on the cross, and in order for people to be saved, they have to be baptized. What happened to all the people in the Old Testament? All those people that lived before the cross, what happened to them? Well, this verse tells us right here what happens in verse 15. He says, And for this cause he is mediator of the New Testament, by, uh, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament. Notice that. The ones that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So that tells us right there that the blood of Christ goes both ways from the cross. All of those in the patriarchal age, all those in the Mosaic age that died, that lived and died faithfully under the law that they were under at the time, the blood of Christ gives them redemption. They don't have to worry about it. And yet the Hebrews writer tells us very plainly that it's the blood of Christ, as he mentions here, the New Testament, but yet it goes back to the very beginning. The blood of Christ, although it dedicates the New Testament, it covers both ways. We're also told that without the dedication of blood, and we know if we go back and look at the old law, how that the sprinkling of the blood and uh, all those things that were connected with that were so important to ratify the law. And yet we see that the blood of Christ ratifies His law. He's dedicated. He was dedicated to the cross from the very beginning. And He went to that cross for us. One last point about the blood of Christ. There are many points. We can pull out several things concerning the blood of Christ. But one of the most important things, and, and the world does not understand this, uh, is that uh, for Christians, as long as we walk in the light, doing what God wants, living faithfully, the blood of Christ continually cleanses us. It's not a matter of saving us in the, at the point that we uh, obey the gospel and have our sins taken away at that point. As long as we're walking in the light, that blood continually cleanses us. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to worry about whether uh, we're going to make it to heaven or not. Because as long as we're faithful, God did not ask us to be perfect, perfect without any flaws whatsoever. But he did ask us and command us to be faithful, to be consistent, to walk in the light. There have been those... Uh, at different times ask, uh, and these ask members of the church, well, if you died right now, are you going to heaven? What should be the answer of every faithful Christian? Definitely yes. But many 
will say, well, I hope so. Why are you hoping? Is there something missing in your life that, I mean, you're not living faithfully? Is there something going on that would cause you to wonder whether you're going to uh, make it to heaven if you were to die at that point? We should have all the confidence in the world because God has promised us if we're faithful, He is faithful. Any sin that we have, he's in 1 John, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Well, that says a couple of things. First of all, it says if we are faithful, or if we confess our sins, first of all, we're doing what God wants us to, but it says that He is faithful. That says God's faithful in His promises to us. So we don't have to worry about that. If we're walking in the light, as John says, we have fellowship one with another. If we're in fellowship with God, we're in fellowship with God. He doesn't say you might be in fellowship with God. He doesn't say that. He says we walk in the light, we have fellowship. Of course, it's not about being perfect. It's about being consistent in what we do and walking in the light. Of course, that means that a person... First of all, has to be a child of God. And there's so much misunderstanding in the world today about what a child of God really is. People say, well, if I believe in God, then I'm a child of God. Or if, if I'm a member of this religious group over here, I'm a child of God. We worship Christ, so therefore I'm a child of God. But we know that the Bible is a little more specific than that. Because a person can't be a child of God if they have not obeyed the gospel. Because where do we find out what we must do in order to be a child of God? In the scriptures. And then when we find that, then we have to follow that if we want to be a child of God. It is not about just believing that God exists. It's not about being a good person. Because we know uh, as we look at the example set forth for us for, about Cornelius. He was a Gentile. He was a man of God. He prayed. He gave alms. He had a good report of the Jews, but yet he still needed the gospel. He still had to obey the gospel, and that's why that the gospel went to the Gentiles beginning at his house because the Gentiles needed it as well as the Jews. So we must understand that the world has a different definition of Christian, and that's why oftentimes we, we're not in a position, as Brian said this morning, we're not in a position to, position to say something right at that time about something. Sometimes I know that you're like I am. You kind of have to bite your tongue because you want to be able to say something, but yet you, you really don't have the opportunity to. So uh, the world has a different view of what a Christian is. But the blood of Christ is so important for us because without it, we have no remission of sins, as the Hebrews writer says. But a person has to come in contact with that blood. And if we go to Romans, the sixth chapter, and we read there how that uh, we're uh, buried into the death of Christ by baptism, we find that that is really where we contact the blood of Christ. Christ has done all that he can. He can't do any more. He went to the cross, shed his blood. That's the most that he can do. The rest is left up to humanity. The rest is left up to each individual. 
And in order for a person to become a child of God according to the Scriptures, they're going to have to obey the Gospel. And as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, that those that know not God and obey not the Gospel, they're going to suffer eternal destruction. There's no middle ground there. He says they will not. If a person does not know God and does not obey the Gospel, they're going to suffer eternal destruction condemnation a sad fate for those who have the opportunity and we live in a world today that people have the opportunity there may be some here tonight who have never rendered their total obedience to the gospel to become a child of God but you have that opportunity tonight it all begins with hearing the word of God which is part of what we've done tonight hearing means understanding And then Jesus said, except you believe that he is who he says he is, you will die in your sins, John 8, 24. And then repentance is a a very important part of that because repentance, someone uh, the other day asked, what is repentance, true repentance? Well, that means changing. It's a change of mind that results in a change of action. And that's what a person has to do in their repentance of sin turning away from that which is sinful, following that which is righteous. And then confession, public confession, and then to be baptized for the remission of sins. Now that's what makes a Bible Christian. We don't go by the world's definition of a Christian because it's different from what the Bible teaches. But in order for a person to become a child of God, to become a Christian, they have to follow those requirements that God has laid out for us. And if you have not done that, we encourage you to. But as a child of God, this might be a time for you to come forward with something that needs to be taken care of in a public manner. If it's something that is not public, then that's take, uh, then you take care of that in your private life. But if you need to respond to obey the gospel to start with or to come home, we pray that you'll do so as we stand and sing.